Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. To test or not to test? Well, in some cases that has been the question. When we're talking about prostate cancer, this is a cancer that affects men mainly when they're older, but can be of any age. And there have been some recent debates with the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force in whether or not prostate cancer is something we should continue to screen for for men. On the plus side, screening for it can lead to earlier diagnosis, intervention, and avoidance of progression of cancer. On the minus side, there are folks that sometimes have procedures done that result in negative results, and maybe the procedures may have some side effects to it. But prostate cancer is an important issue for all men to think about. And today, to help us figure out what the latest is and how to really interpret some of the recommendations that are being made by various societies, we have a panel of experts. Now, our show today is going to be recorded. So if you do have questions, you can always go ahead and give a holler to the station. Let them know what show you're listening to. They can always get me the information. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And questions can be forwarded to me, and I'll make sure that my guests get those and provide an answer if possible. Now, today here in the ta- at the table, we have Dr. Charles Rosser. He is of the UH Cancer Center, and he's joined by Paul Mizue, and bo- both he and Steve Davidson run the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition. And this is a group of men who get together and really help to support one another and link to clinical trials on their website, link to support groups on their website, and really help to provide a lot of up-to-date information on prostate cancer. So without further ado, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, let's talk. So September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and that was sort of the original date when we were going to have our show on. It's a little bit after that, but we were preempted for a good reason. I think there might be a debate that was on. And so when we're talking about the debate of prostate cancer, part of what we often hear is that people explain what's happened to them personally and tell their story. Uh, Paul, tell me a little bit about you've had prostate cancer when you were diagnosed and what that process was like for you. Well, this is back in uh, 2008. Uh, I was originally diagnosed with uh, enlarged prostate. And through the checking of my urologist, uh, he discovered that my PSA was rising. In fact, it almost doubled within six months. And so he recommended I get a biopsy. I had a traditional biopsy, conventional one, and I had a Gleason score of 4 plus 3. So he told me uh, I had two choices, either radiation or surgery, and he would be glad to arrange a surgery within two weeks. I said, uh, well, let me research this thing a little bit further. So I was very, I'm an engineer by training, and I was very enamored with proton beam radiation because it's a different technology and it's unfortunately not available in Hawaii. So uh, I talked to my friend on the mainland who had a similar condition. In fact, he, he got treated six months before I did. And after consulting with many, many doctors, I decided to go with it and go through with it. Now, unfortunately, it was not covered under normal insurance, so I had to pay out of pocket, but that was the price I paid. It was not available in Hawaii, so I had to travel to California to undertake it. And uh, it was everything went swimmingly well until about five and a half years after I had been treated. And then I discovered my uh, PSA was rising. So lo and behold, I had recurrent prostate cancer. So the first thing I did is try to determine where it's at. Unfortunately, the imaging uh, technology is not available here in Hawaii, so I traveled to Arizona 
to get a uh, C11 carbon acetate scan. So there they discovered I had two residual prostate cancer locations, one in my prostate and one in my lymph node. So then I decided I must treat those uh, portions. So I went to um, over here to the Hawaii uh, Cancer Center here in Laliha and got, it, got my lymph node treated with radiation. Then I went to California again to get treated with uh, cryotherapy or freezing of the prostate. So, so far, so good. That was uh, a year ago, and then I'm tracking my PSA up to this point in time. So right now, my PSA is 0.03, so it's satisfactory. I have to track it indefinitely over, over the next uh, 10 years or so. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of the terms. And Dr. Rosser, I'm going to have you explain a little bit about this. Uh, the first thing that Paul mentioned is that he had a rising PSA. So the rate of increase, in his case almost doubling in six months, that has some relevance to how concerned we are about it. Is that right? Absolutely. We're definitely concerned when the PSA starts to rise rapidly, usually something over 0.75 nanograms per ml per year we're worried about. And so as Paul has said that he had a rapidly rising PSA, which would, again, uh, send the red alarms off for us. So you could even be in the normal range, but if you've done it, and, and one of the things to mention and what one of my urology colleagues has taught me many times is that there's a certain way that you should do a PSA. And you should do a PSA when you haven't had any sort of particular prostatic activity. So that can range from, I like to go ride road bikes or motorcycles, or I like to have sexual activity. And so there's there's a reason why it can't just be looked at without taking those things into consideration. There are certain activities you need to avoid prior to doing a PSA to really confirm if you have an accurate one. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, so when we see this elevated PSA, that's the first thing we ask the, the gentleman. Oh, what have you been doing prior to his blood draw? So as you mentioned, if they're out there riding motorcycles, riding horses, even riding a lawnmower can do it. Riding a bike will do it. Uh, sexual activities, as you mentioned as, as well. Or if you had to get um, catheterized or instrumented uh, down there as well, can cause a false elevation of the PSA. So step one is check to make sure it's an accurate, a well-done PSA, meaning the doctor's given them appropriate precautions on how to do this test well. Absolutely. Okay. And the next thing that Paul mentioned is a Gleason score. And some folks may not be familiar with a Gleason score. So can you explain that a little bit? Sure. This is named after Dr. Gleason, a pathologist who came up with a scoring system for prostate cancer. And he and named so, it after himself. Absolutely. You know. Why not? Why not? There you go. Okay. <laughs> so what this does, it actually tells us the aggressiveness of the cancer. And it goes from a range from 6 to 10, with 6 being less aggressive and 10 being very aggressive and everything in the middle being the gradations between between less and more aggressive. So it's a score that's based on what exactly? So it's based on what the pathologist will see under the microscope and actually composed of two scores. So they try to find out the biggest portion of cancer and they grade it through a number really uh, uh, three to five. Uh, and so then they next find the next biggest focus of cancer and grade it again a number three to five, and that gives you a number uh, three plus three, thus equals. Or Paul six. mentioned four exactly. plus three, which was a Gleason score of seven. Exactly. exactly. Okay. And Paul, you mentioned traditional biopsy as opposed to what? Well, there's a current technology available in the last three years known as MRI 
ultrasound fusion technique, which is available at Polymomid currently. And that's a very good technology because it combines two different images into one image that the urologist can uh, see. And he can target the uh, location of the biopsies uh, for which the tumors can be evaluated. So it's a very targeted biopsy as yes. opposed to doing a, a random sampling, trying yes. to make sure you Norm- have enough normally, tissue. Okay. Normally, maybe six to eight uh, samples as compared to 12 or 15 samples. Okay. So it really helps to target the area, find something that looks like it could be concerning, and, and it spares the extra number of biopsies, but it also increases the likelihood that you're going to get to the area that's most concerning. That's okay. correct. Uh, Dr. Rosser, proton beam radiation therapy. Uh, I think that's still a heated debate uh, here. Uh, Though the proton beam has been around for 15, 20 years, we still don't have good clinical data justifying proton beam over conventional uh, radiation, which in most cases will be the image-guided radiation or uh, image-modulating radiation, uh, IMRT. So right now, I think the jury is still out on if it's uh, better, but it is another option available for patients. So, and in this case right now, if you were to choose that, like Paul, you'd probably have to go to the mainland to have that done. And since we don't have any clinical data to say it's better than, superior than, should be done instead of, insurance often may not cover for the proton beam if they cover for standard radiation treatment. Right, right. It's a roll of the dice whether the insurance companies will pay for it because it's significantly more expensive. Typically, proton beams are going for about $100,000 per treatment, where the traditional (coughs) IMRT is about $45,000 $45,000 for the treatment. So it's like double, Correct. maybe a little more. But significantly, okay. uh, the Medicare, I believe, pays for the 80% cost of the proton, whereas it's a toss-up whether the insurance companies will pay the balance. So essentially, with certain insurance companies, yes. they may pay a, a large percentage. That's right. And maybe not all, but something to look into. Mm-hmm. So not everyone would have to pay 100%. That's right. If they have Medicare, there may be some coverage for it. That's right. Now, the other thing you mentioned that was curious in your story, Paul, is the uh, carbon acetate scan, the C11 scan. And I'm just going to be openly ignorant and say, never heard of that one. Mm-hmm. What's that? So it's one of the new bone scans uh, that we have, the PET imaging uh, scans uh, available. We are seeing a lot of activity of this on the mainland with the C11 and some of the other new isotopes as as well. And they have all started to show greater sensitivity and specificity for uh, the diagnosis of the cancer compared to our traditional uh, bone scan that we use here on our patients. So are all PET scans... Similar, these positive emission tomograms. When we talk bone scan, there's like a nuclear bone scan. PET right. scan is a little different. Right. What are all these scans? Now, now I'm just sharing my radiologic ignorance. So they are different because they use different isotopes that may pick up certain things. Some may pick up choline. Some may pick up acetate. So some picks up, um, again, the inner workings of some of the cancers. And some cancers may not have certain inner workings where others cancers may have that. So you pick the isotope based on the cancer, and depending on if you have that cancer spread, like Paul had mentioned, there's a lymph node in another area of the prostate, that isotope can help find that area, and there are some newer isotopes that are more specific. Right. Another I consideration is the uh, half-life of the isotope, because uh, in this case here, the C11 uh, carbon acetate has a half-life of only 20 minutes. So that means that uh, essentially you must have the facility located next to the cyclotron because if you don't have that then and if it's going to take longer than 20 minutes you're going to lose half your sample 
So, so you've got to have the material available that's right. and the scan equipment available that's right. one right after another. That's right. So there's only very few places for which the facility is lo- co-located with a cyclotron. And that to, makes a big difference. Yes. Okay. So I'm curious, Paul, when you had this recurrence that you talked about that occurred and you found out that there was still a little bit in the prostate and there was a lymph node, you did do traditional radiation treatment, and then you also did cryotherapy. Yes, cryotherapy is essentially freezing uh, the targeted area of the prostate. It doesn't work outside the prostate, but only within the prostate. So first of all, you have to identify the location of the residual prostate cancer, and then you go to a therapist and you'll freeze the prostate in that location, which causes uh, the killing of the prostate's uh, cancer cells. So the idea is you could radiate them, you could do other sorts of localized treatment with radiation, or in this case, you could use cryotherapy, freezing the prostate, thus killing cancer cells of the prostate. Well, the problem, the problem I had is I could not re-radiate the same location which I had radiation. So that's another constraint on radiation itself. You cannot radiate the same intensity at the same organ. Mm. You must do some other technique. So in this case here, I chose freezing on the prostate, and in this case, I can do it repetitively. Uh, freezing, you can do... Even though it fails another time, I can repeat the cryotherapy in that location. Dr. Rosser, how come you can't radiate the same area you radiated in, and how does freezing prostate cells work? Right. That's a great question uh, there. So typically, we try to radiate the prostate up to 76 gray radiation. So it's the maximum radiation that we can deliver. So if the patient unfortunately fails a few years later and we try to go back and re-irradiate, that tissue and surrounding tissue will then be exposed to greater than at 70 gray radiation. So I usually tell the patients, in essence, we're going to start to burn up your tissue and some of the normal surrounding tissue and have more complications than what we want to deal with. So usually after they have the radiation, as uh, Mr. Mazuya says, that we'll only be able to do it that one time, and then we have to move to a different modality. And in this case, cryotherapy. So freezing cells kills them? It sure does. So cryosurgery has had a resurgence here over the past five to 10 years, and it's really the mode of treatment to treat the patients who have had the radiorecurrent prostate cancer. Otherwise, we're left to doing a salvage prostatectomy, salvage removing the, the prostate after it's been irradiated. And I'll let you know it's no fun uh, day if you have to go in there and remove the prostate in that setting. Because there's scar tissue, it's difficult. Tremendous and amount of scar tissue. It's surgically going to be hard to do and maybe more complications. Correct. I usually tell the patient it's almost like chiseling a tennis ball out of a block of cement. We can do it, <laughs> but it's not so graceful. That's a good analogy, sort of. <laughs> it makes me not want to play tennis or play with tennis balls. Okay, because that's got to be difficult because you really have to. And even with even with robotic surgery, urology procedures are one of those areas where using the da Vinci robot or robotic surgery has been proven to actually be an excellent right. option, if not superior option Correct. than traditional surgery. So robotic surgery has particular niche areas, and this is one of them. Right. So even with robotic surgery, if you've had radiation, it's still very difficult, difficult. to do the procedure because it's just it's just hard to do. Correct. Now, what is the likelihood that Paul, having had prostate cancer, treated it the manner in which he did, and then having seen the recurrence localized and then in the lymph node, is there a likelihood it's going to come back? Do we know when we've had recurrences if this is if this is a 50% chance of coming back or maybe less than 10%? 
Any idea? We have a ballpark uh, uh, figure here. So uh, what uh, Mr. Mazu has told us, uh, we would label him as having intermediate risk prostate cancer. And we usually will say intermediate risk prostate cancer has about a 20 to 25% chance of recurrence within the next five to 10 years. And if they, if he had, what are the other options other than intermediate? So other than intermediate is low-risk prostate cancer. The chance of it failing within 5 to 10 years is less than 10%. Okay. So that's on the best side. Then intermediate, as the name says, is right in the middle. And then the high-risk cancer has a greater than 50% chance of recurring in 5 to 10 years. And men can die of prostate cancer. Absolutely, they can. So if they were in the high risk of recurrence, would that be a greater likelihood that they may get a more aggressive form? Uh, if they're labeled high risk, it, it uh, would put them at increased risk. And those are patients we usually would try to do what's called treat with multimodality. So we don't want to go after radiation only or surgery only. We may have to combine radiation and surgery or maybe radiation with hormones and surgery or hormones. So it really is trying to figure out the answer and using more than one option because very often, particularly with treatment of a variety of different things, we have to consider more than just one modality. Paul, when you look back on this experience, would you have done anything differently? It's hard to say. Uh, current technology has changed over the past uh, six, seven years. So who knows? I may have chosen maybe cryotherapy to begin with. I mean, if it was what, around, if, sure. If it was around, yes. But and, knowing what you know about what was around, do you feel like you made the right decisions I given? I felt the I made the right the right decision. Uh, and circumstances being uh, what it was, but uh, unfortunately, it did not turn out right for me. But uh, nevertheless, it was a learning experience, and I think I'll learn from uh, future exercises like this. You think? I mean, it seemed like it turned out pretty well. You know, reasonably you did have the well. recurrence, but yeah, well. you know that might have happened no matter what modality. That's, that's true. You, you it's, been it's been estimated that. Uh, Regardless of what kind of treatment you had, about 25% of those patients will have some sort of recurrence. So it may be independent of the actual technique uh, being used. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're here. It's a success. You're here to come on the show again and uh, promote education about prostate cancer, which is really what we're here to talk about today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Paul Mizue, Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition President, Dr. Charles Rosser of UH Cancer Center, and up until now silent but soon to tell his story, Steve Davidson. He also is with the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition, and they're promoting prostate cancer awareness. So when we come back, we're going to talk more with Steve and hear his story and what happened with his diagnosis of prostate cancer and how it was treated. And then we're going to talk about some of the myths that are out there. Should men be tested for prostate cancer? Where did we get the idea that maybe they don't need to be? And what is the statistical basis for which to recommend continuing to target our evaluations and proceed with a concept that we consider to be active surveillance? So please stay with us. We'll be right back after this quick break.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. Today we are talking about prostate cancer. We have Paul Mizue from Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition. He's the president. We are joined by Dr. Charles Rosser of UH Cancer Center. And we are joined by Steve Davidson, the man behind the mission to help educate everyone about prostate cancer and a survivor of this himself. Now, before the break, we were hearing Paul's story about his diagnosis and what sort of modalities of treatment he's chosen and where he's at right now. And we had an opportunity to hear a little bit about what some of these different terms mean. What is cryotherapy, proton beam therapy, different types of PET scans or bone scans to figure out if there's a recurrence of cancer. And it really has been educational. So thank you, Paul, for sharing your firsthand experience, but allowing us to use that as an opportunity to educate one another about what these terms mean. Now, Steve, unfortunately, you've been silent. I've I've kind of saved you for the second segment. And I want to hear your story. So you've also been a you're a survivor of prostate cancer and you were diagnosed and you went through treatment. Tell me about how this happened for you. I was diagnosed in February of 2011. My PSA had risen not very dramatically and the absolute level was 3.9, which is not terribly high. Uh, I was Uh, advised by my uh, urologist to have a biopsy um, because my PSA had risen. And um, I had a traditional biopsy, which is not what uh, Paul was talking about earlier. Traditional biopsy, I believe there were 12 cores. 12 needles are inserted into the prostate. And uh, it's uh, ultrasound-guided uh, it's a random biopsy. They just sort of stick the needles in. And I um, uh, came back a short while later to get the diagnosis, and the diagnosis was Gleason 6, 3 plus 3. Uh, I had understood that the lowest Gleason score would be 1 plus 1. Uh, <laughs> learned later that really uh, 3 plus 3 is really the lowest that anybody would call uh, it prostate cancer. I would have thought one plus one, too, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. So, I mean, it's like, okay, three out of five, one out of whatever. So sure. I'm with you. Okay. So when I heard three plus three, that sounds sort of, you know, moderate somewhere in the middle. Uh, the doctor described it as low risk. I think he said low risk to intermediate, uh, but thought the prognosis was very good and recommended either surgery or radiation. Uh, spent some time with me explaining the options. Uh, gave me stuff to read. I did some studying, uh, spoke to my wife about it, and ended up s- selecting a form of radiation. I'm not sure how, because when you I You listened looked, to your wife. Well, <laughs> part of it was I listened to her. Uh, she was in the medical field and said, I've seen a lot of botched uh, prostatectomy, surgery, so don't have surgery. So that was an influencing factor. Um, but in reading the literature and going online and all, uh, there were a lot of pros and cons to both. And in the end, it was really hard to say that one was going to be better than the other. There were risks to both. So I chose uh, what's called brachytherapy, which is a radioactive seed implants, 140 radioactive seeds. They're about the size of a uh, grain of rice are inserted into the prostate. The kind I had, which I think is the most common, they're they're permanent, so they're put in and they're left there. There's also a form in which they're put in and taken out a short while later. It's a higher dose of radiation. Uh, in my case, the radiation uh, gradually decreased 
over the course of 20 months, and at the end of 20 months, there was no more radiation being emitted. Uh, but during that 20 months, the radiation would kill the, the whole prostate, not just the cancer. Uh, and um, I, I should say that prior to uh, the radiation seed implant, which was in August of 2011, I was on uh, ADT, which is a hormone therapy for, well, nine months really, uh, about six months prior to the implant, and then there, the uh, the uh, power of the of, of the medication lasts again at least three months, if not six more months, and that is to reduce your testosterone level, uh, but also it shrinks the prostate. Like many men, I had an enlarged prostate, and it is uh, uh, brachytherapy is more successful with smaller prostate. So the um, the uh, hormone therapy shrunk the prostate prior to the uh, seed implants. There are side effects to the uh, ADT. Uh, my experience is it varies a lot from uh, one man to the next. Uh, in my case, uh, it caused uh, muscle weakness, uh, loss of energy, uh, hot flashes for um, a couple of months before those subsided. Some men become very, very depressed um, and, and have other uh, sorts of symptoms. Um, then I had the, the implants. I then experienced a very uh, severe reaction to the implants. I, I had very severe bladder spasms, which I understand are uh, very, uh, very unusual. Uh, usually when men have uh, seed implants, the, the, the side effects thereafter are not very great. But I went through about two or three weeks of real hell uh, before they tried a medication, which I guess was an older medication. They tried everything new, tried an older one, and it finally calmed down the, the spasms. And I won't bore you anymore with the gory details <laughs> um, or shock you with the gory details. Well, you know, it is a medical show. I don't know yeah. how much it would shock <laughs> yeah. me, but some of our listeners might be eating dinner. So, yes. okay. Yes. And... Uh, uh, after that, uh, the effects of the ADT wore off, uh, and um, I, uh, I've recovered uh, completely uh, from the, uh, the treatment. Um, I get my PSA tested, was every three months, and now down to every six months, and uh, it has remained very, very low. With a prostatectomy, removal of the prostate, your uh, PSA should be zero. Uh, when you have uh, radiation treatment such as mine, there's still some tissue left over, and so there uh, will be a, a low level of uh, PSA, and mine has remained low. And as long as it does, I'm in the clear. And so i now a little over five years since my treatment. All right, so some new learning terms for us. Dr. Rosser, um, we mentioned traditional biopsy. We talked a little bit about that. So a traditional biopsy done as random sampling is about 12 different samples. A Correct. traditional biopsy done, even with ultrasound guidance, might be less, or MRI, as Paul described, that can now be done. This dual modality MRI ultrasound guided biopsy can actually lead to fewer samples. But in 2011, at the time when, when Steve had his biopsy, it's 
let's go ahead and get 12 different areas with the, with the thought that statistically, if there's a problem, we're going to catch it in one of those biopsies. And lo and behold, they found the Gleason 6 or 3 plus 3. Correct. And I'm sorry nobody told you that was a pretty good score, Steve. Uh, you know, three yeah. plus three, <laughs> kind of on the low end. But right. okay, so brachytherapy, let's talk about that. Because brachytherapy is a concept that, you know, we talked about the seeds that are implanted. It's a form of radiation. Correct. How is it different than just going to a radiation center and having traditional radiation? So traditional radiation, when we're doing the IMRT, the patient has to come into the center Monday through Friday for close to six weeks to have the treatment done. Granted, each time they come in, it's about 15, 20 minutes there, uh, but it's over a long period of time. So with the brachytherapy, it's a, even though it's a, it's a radiation, it's actually a surgical procedure. So you come into the hospital, an outpatient, you're put to sleep, lie you there on the table. We put the ultrasound in, visualize the prostate, and then we implant these uh, seeds into the prostate. And at the end of the procedure, it looks almost as if we put pepper on the prostate, where we've completely peppered the prostate with these radiation seeds, which will then leach the radiation out and kill the cancer. In a three-dimensional way. Correct. Okay, so you can actually see these, and I've seen these on CAT scans or MRIs or even x-rays where you're like, oh, that's interesting, and it looks like it's prostate seed implants, and it usually is. So in that kind of situation, the idea is that the localized amount of radiation will kill the prostate tissue, as Steve mentioned, the good and the bad prostate tissue. Correct. And subsequent to that, you can leave these little peppered seeds in there. You don't take them out. That would be a fairly difficult thing to do. And if they're inactive, they don't cause you any problems. You too can go through the x-ray machine at the airport. You're not going to have some major problem. It's just inactive. I did set off the radiation detector while they were still active. (laughs) And I'm wondering, where was there a radiation detector, Steve? Um, International arrivals. Interesting, there is. Yeah. Well, okay. That's an interesting thing to note. I wouldn't have thought it. So brachytherapy, and is it fairly successful? I mean, it sounds like it's a somewhat more convenient way to achieve radiation without having to go to a center for six weeks. You do have a surgical procedure, but, you know, it sounds like, is it equivalent to traditional radiation? Is there an advantage? It is. So uh, if you, again, look at the risk stratification of the patients, uh, low risk, intermediate, and high risk, uh, brachytherapy is a great treatment option for patients with low risk prostate cancer. Now, when you get intermediate risk prostate cancer, you're worried about the prostate kind of uh, uh, leaving the prostate gland. And so you may need a little oomph on top of the brachytherapy. And it may be the brachytherapy with some traditional external beam boost there. So it could be a combination. Correct. Now, prior to even doing the brachytherapy, Steve mentioned that he did a testosterone deprivation sort of hormonal treatment. Now, what is the relationship between testosterone and the prostate? So this relationship has come about with some groundbreaking work from the 50s and 60s where Dr. Charles Huggins actually won the Nobel Prize uh, for this to show that with the male hormone testosterone around, it has the ability to feed the prostate cancer and let it grow. So thus, if you remove the male hormone testosterone, you can kind of squelch the prostate cancer, not really cure it, but put it into a quote-unquote remission. So for men who have normal prostates who have low testosterone and they choose to take testosterone as a supplement Mm. because maybe they're in their 30s or 40s, their levels are low, they're symptomatic, Mm. and they want to take testosterone replacement. Does that put them at risk for making their prostate grow and having cancer later? 
It could, because one of the risk factors for developing prostate cancer is having the male hormone testosterone around. They've done some studies with unfortunate people, uh, eunuchs, where they were castrated at a very young age. They'll never develop prostate cancer. So now if you have someone who has the low level of testosterone and then give them testosterone back to make it a normal level, that could put them back at risk of developing prostate cancer at a later time. So if they have low testosterone and they don't have any symptoms, one of the arguments to not take testosterone if there are no symptoms and no problem is that it's actually lowering the risk for prostate cancer. Correct. It has that potential. So when we talk about having folks do this testosterone-blocking sort of hormone treatment, the idea is that it blocks testosterone from stimulating the prostate, but we don't really have a localized way to do that. So some of the side effects that Steve mentioned, it blocks testosterone everywhere. everywhere. So there's other areas and tissues in the body that may be responsive to testosterone. Absolutely. There may be a hormonal, emotional effect. Absolutely. There's a variety of different things that can occur. So that's why you might have systemic symptoms. You mentioned hot flashes, emotional changes. There's risks for depression mm -hmm. because we're now blocking a hormone that is traditionally associated with promoting growth of these tissues in, in men. Correct. If you have prostate cancer, that's a no-go, never use testosterone supplements ever. Uh, that's still some controversy there. If you have low-risk prostate okay. cancer, they believe you could safely have supplementation, but you just need to be monitored uh, carefully because it's very possible that low risk can turn into intermediate or high risk. And then, again, having that testosterone present is just going to add fuel to that prostate cancer fire and cause it to grow. So you technically could, but you'd have to be super careful. Exactly. Because you, you know, and I kind of look at testosterone replacement as best handled by an expert, whether it be an endocrinologist or urologist, because the normal range for testosterone in men ranges from, you know, the normal is anywhere from like 300 to 1200, depending on the lab. And it just depends on your age where the testosterone is expected to be. So at 18, you're probably at 1,200. At 65, you probably shouldn't be at 1,200 anymore right. because that may actually be an artificial level that could cause harm to the body, as we found with estrogen in women. You know, the Women's Health Initiative found that women were taking a lot of hormone replacement to mitigate some of the side effects of symptoms of menopause, and it actually was associated with increased risks of certain types of cancer. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't normal for the body to have that high level of estrogen as women got older, it sounds like it's not normal for the body to have a high level of testosterone as men get older. And Correct. we're finding these things out by doing the studies to determine what is the most appropriate level, age-based and symptom-based, et cetera. So, Steve, you had this entire episode. You had the brachytherapy. You had the androgen deprivation. Prior to that, you're currently in the clear five years already. What are the chances that a low-grade prostate cancer would come back after five years of treatment like Steve's had? Uh, it's still very low. Less than 10% chance of these cancers will, will come back. So uh, it's, it still looks good. Does the prolonged duration without having a recurrence lend itself to think that it's less likely? Uh, it does some to some degree. There are uh, some cases I've seen that will come back 10 or 15 years uh, uh, later. But uh, the longer out, the better. And so in this case, Steve can't celebrate and say, I'm cured, I'm cured. But for all intents and purposes, there is no expectation, very low chance that he would have this come back. Correct. Okay. Now, it gets to the big question, to test or not to test. 
And that becomes fairly difficult. I'm sure, Paul, I'm sure, Steve, you would say, yeah, get your prostate checked and get it tested of whatever means. And there's questions as to whether or not the digital rectal exam is all that helpful. Should it be done through blood testing, PSA testing, other markers? Yet there's still a bit of a controversy about whether or not we should be doing this. Why the controversy? First, Paul, what is your thought on PSA testing? And then, Steve, I'm going to ask you next. Well, I think it's very, very uh, suitable to be tested. Uh, any men, uh, any men over forty years old, especially over fifty, should at least have a baseline PSA testing, and thereafter you should periodically test it because it's not the uh, static level one-time test and forget about it. You must test it periodically to determine whether it's rising. Like in my case, it rose over a period of time, so there was some problem uh, associated with that rise. So, so you would say do the test do the test, and don't just do it once. Yes, you have to test it periodically, whether it's every year or every two years. It's dependent upon the urologist, but you should get it tested periodically to determine the progress of the, of the PSA because PSA is a somewhat of an indicator that there's some biological activity going on in the prostate and possibly prostate cancer. It doesn't assure that you have any cancer, but it's an indicator. And that's an important point mm-hmm. is that high PSA, like when I was not necessarily counseling men on how to do that in the most appropriate fashion, things could actually affect that PSA reading. So do it the correct way, but you may need to do it more than once. Yes. Okay. And if you have a very high PSA the first time, usually over 20, then it's an indication of an immediate problem that you should look into. I mean, normally P- PSAs are a very low level, one to two or three, but if it's a very high level, then that's indicative of some other issue. And Steve, your thoughts on checking PSAs? Well, to oversimplify a very complicated story, the problem with uh, uh, PSA testing and the reason there have been objections to it is because of the resulting overtreatment of low-grade prostate cancer. Uh, And so we would uh, have uh, men routinely screened. Their PSAs would be low, uh, they might go up a little bit, as mine did, and uh, surgery. This is the way things have been going on for years. Uh, surgery or radiation was immediately recommended, and these men had invasive treatment with the side effects. We haven't even talked about all the side effects that come along with that, not to mention just the expense to the patient, the expense to the entire medical system. And what's been rec- recognized increasingly in the f- five years since I had my treatment is that for these low-grade cancers, in many cases, that sort of invasive treatment is not necessary, certainly not necessary immediately. And I'm sure we will get a chance, I hope we will, before we're done, to talk about active surveillance. Um, and active surveillance means that um, we've looked at you and we said, you know, your PSA has gone up some, but uh, you are at least in 3 plus 3, and we look at your age and other factors, And uh, one uh, possible uh, course for you is not to do immediate treatment, but instead to actively watch um, your situation in which uh, there would be regular PSAs, there would be perhaps repeat biopsies, um, and other kinds of studies uh, in order to see whether or not that kind of of, uh, treatment is ever necessary. And so, um, as Dr. Rosser put it the other day when we were talking, the problem is not over-testing, it's over-treatment. Uh, it's what you do with those results. And we're finding increasingly that we don't have to, in every case, in fact, in many cases, not have to do immediate invasive treatment. 
All right. And speaking of active surveillance, we're going to take about a quick break here. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with both Paul Mazue and uh, Steve Davidson from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition and Dr. Charles Rosser from the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. And when we come back, we're going to define what is active surveillance. What does that mean? And what are the latest up and coming, hopeful, hopefully soon to be breakthroughs in the diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. With my guests today, we have Paul Mizue from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition, Steve Davidson from Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition as well, and Dr. Charles Rosser from the UH Cancer Center. And today we're talking about prostate cancer. Now, September was National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and there's a little bit of controversy uh, on prostate cancer, but not so much when we think about some of the newer terms on how we are managing and monitoring people who are involved in concerns about prostate cancer. So it happens to be October, but we are still talking about this because it's such an important topic. And right before the break, Steve Davidson was talking about a term that, Dr. Rosser, you introduced here to me on the show a couple of years ago for the mm-hmm. first time, and that term was active surveillance. And tell me what that is and why we even do it. So active surveillance is when we actively monitor patients with prostate cancer. Typically, it's with low-risk or low-intermediate-risk prostate cancer, and uh, monitor them closely to make sure that the cancer uh, doesn't grow, doesn't progress. Uh, so that's what active surveillance is. So, you know, some people might have previously said, let's watch and wait. That's not a term. Active surveillance means we're not watching and waiting. We're actively trying to determine if this particular potentially low-grade Gleason score is going to turn into something more serious, and then we'll treat it differently. Correct, correct. Usually with this, with the active surveillance, again, we're being active with it. With this, I will check my patients every three months to have a PSA level, uh, yearly to have the examination, a digital rectal examination, and typically I'll have to repeat their biopsy in the future, usually one to two years later, and then maybe a few years after that, just to make sure, again, the volume of disease isn't going up, and that the aggressiveness, that Gleason score that we heard about earlier is not going up either. 
Now, that's a term that kind of, it answers the question. You know, Steve was mentioning earlier that part of the discussion on whether or not to, to test or not to test for prostate cancer isn't really, the blood test itself is not that expensive. It's not a huge risk. If you're doing other testing for blood, it's kind of included in the same blood test. So it's not like it's a huge extra amount of blood. And although there is an expense agreed, it's not a controversy to do the blood test. The controversy is what do we do about the results? And so even even Paul mentioned not all elevated PSAs are prostate cancer, that there's a process of evaluating those. What should someone do if they see their doctor, they do a blood test for a PSA that's presumed they've done it correctly because we've given them the right instructions. Mm-hmm. What should they do if it's high? When they go to see someone like yourself who's a specialist in urology, what do you do? Correct. So typically, I don't look at this uh, one PSA level in a vacuum. I'll try to get the other PSAs. And if it has been creeping up over time, then I try to get a little bit more information there. So one thing I do is get what's called a free and total PSA. So that kind of distinguishes the good PSA from the bad PSA. If you have more free PSA, it's associated with the BPH, the benign prostate, and that's good uh, PSA. I also get this urine test called PCA3. It's kind of an RNA-based urine test. That will also help me risk stratify patients if they have uh, if they require a prostate biopsy or not. So this PCA three is it's a, a newer marker Correct. that may not replace a PSA, but may be used in conjunction with it to get more information. Correct. And if you have a high level of PCA three, would that indicate that you may potentially have more of a cancerous cause? Versus a non-cancerous cause? Correct. It could, but then again, I don't look at the PCA3 in a vacuum either. Then I look at the overall PSA, was that high, and I look at the free and total PSA. So typically, if three of these, if two of these three indicators were abnormal, uh, chances are the patient has a greater than 35% chance of harboring prostate cancer, and then it sits down and talk to them and let them have an informed decision-making process uh, with it. And again, not uh, enforce my will on the patient because... This is what our uh, medical societies are saying. It's an informed decision-making. It's uh, the AUA, American Cancer uh, Society, as well as the NCCN guidelines will all say, sit down and talk to the patient about it. And so really, when you're playing detective, you're not just looking at one particular person's version. You're looking at the PSA. You're looking at the free and total. You're looking at the PCA3. You're talking with the individual. They may have other major health risks that would preclude them from doing a major biopsy, whether it be severe kidney problems or heart problems or lung problems. They might have another reason which they need to focus their health efforts on. Absolutely. So it's really this this discussion, this shared decision-making. Do you want to do a test here? your options. Now, a lot of times in medicine, people say, just tell me what you want me to do, doc, and I'll do it. In that sort of a situation where it becomes more of a request that you tell them what to do, what are some of their options? We've talked about PCA3. There are different modalities of imaging the prostate. If somebody were to say to you, hey, I've got this this high-level PSA, it's not a lot of the free PSA, Mm -hmm. so it's suggestive that maybe there's a problem. I have this intermediate PCA3. Mm -hmm. Can I still actively surveil or should I start getting a little bit more aggressive with biopsies? Tell me what to do, doc. You tell me. It's it's hard because you don't we're we're growing up in this mode of medicine where we don't want to dictate what we right. suggest people do. Right. On the other hand, they look to you and say, "But you're the expert, doc. What should I do?" 
Right. So I think this is when, again, we go in there and let them know the statistics related to it, see if they can make a decision. And if if not, if still we need something else to dictate what we need to do, this comes back to what Mr. Missouri was talking about earlier and that we can image the prostate. Let's do an MRI imaging because nowadays the MRI imaging has uh, really transformed the way that we could detect the prostate cancer. So do an MRI imaging. And if we see a mass lesion there, that's even more reason and then to go for the prostate biopsy now. Sure. And if you don't see one, then you could talk about doing some of the active surveillance, doing some other sort of monitoring. But now we have these additional modalities to really help people to make a decision that makes the most sense for them. Correct. Now, sometimes when people are in the process of having treatment or considering treatment, they do well by talking with other people. And today we've heard from Paul. Thank you for sharing your story, Steve. Thank you as well. Part of the mission of the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition is to help provide educational opportunities for men who want to hear from other people's stories. And you've linked up with a group called Us Too. Steve, tell me a little bit about how that relates to the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition. Um, Us Too International is, as the name implies, a, uh, an international uh, network of support groups uh, for prostate cancer. And we have a group here in Honolulu that meets at Kuakini. We have one at Palimomi, and we have one on the Big Island. And um, these are very informal meetings held once a month. Uh, and uh, we'll give you the website in, in a short while so that people uh, can you access You can give it now. That's okay. Good. It's hawaiiprostatecancer.org. And if you go to that website um, and click on support groups, you'll see the schedule and the upcoming topics. And we have at every meeting uh, men who come who uh, are survivors of prostate cancer. And at every meeting, we have several men who um, are recently diagnosed. Um, uh, some, many, are are looking at their treatment options at that time and um, one of the things we can do, which often cannot take place in the doctor's office, there is the doctor often just doesn't have the time to be able to spend uh, with the patient uh, to be able to really hear about their concerns and to be able to uh, to really have a, an extended discussion with them. Whereas at the S2 meetings, which last several hours, um, we can uh, uh, hear all about the man's situation, some of the things we talked about here today, their Gleason score, the doctor's recommendations. And uh, in our group are men who have had radiation, different forms of radiation, uh, who have had treatment, who are on active surveillance. And uh, we we have excellent uh, uh, conversation, excellent sharing about all the different options, about what people's experiences have been. And uh, invariably, we have men uh, telling us that they really appreciate that time. I should also say that the meetings are open not only to the men, but to their loved ones. We often have spouses come. Uh, sometimes we have uh, adult children come to help uh, perhaps elderly parents who might have some difficulty understanding some of what's going on. Well, and I think the real important value in having that community forum is that very often 
you know, if, if I don't have a prostate, so I'm not really going to know exactly what it feels like to have a prostate biopsy. And if somebody were to come in and say, I have prostate cancer, I can certainly tell them what I've learned from other people, but I can't explain to them what that process is really like for them. And hearing from someone who's been there, who's gone through that procedure, who like Paul chose to go traveling and do proton beam therapy because this made sense for you and that's what you wanted to do. You can give people your experience and it's not telling someone else what they have to do, but it's nice to hear from people who have done that, what that experience was like. We all learn the first time we do something and hopefully the second time we do it differently or third time we've learned from that. And it's nice to not have to do something three times before you figure out the tricks of the trade, before somebody can share with you what really made a difference for them. Well, one thing we want to stress is the sharing of experiences because the most uh, important feature that we want to try to get across to patients and uh, potential patients is getting getting uh, your arm around the process and not, not panicking because the emotional response for most men is, is panic. I got prostate cancer. I want to do everything impossible to get out of get it out of me. That's what we want to try to avoid at at, at, at all costs: is a panic mode, because uh, we want to have a sit down discussion with the potential patient and figure out what his condition is and whether he should seek sec, uh, second opinions, how he should research the issue with his family to figure out the best decision for him and his family. I mean, we're not here to. Uh, we're not healthcare professionals to advise on health decisions, but we can advise them on how to seek the best uh, best remedies for them. Sure, and that's the nice part about it is, you know, Dr. Rosser, you and I both know sometimes we have a power with our knowledge of medicine, but we may not have the ability to touch someone with our personal story if we haven't been through that situation. And sometimes it's not it's not giving medical advice as much as here's how I might approach talking to your doctor or explaining or asking questions or, you know, sometimes it's something simple, like write down a list of your questions, send it to your doctor in advance. You now have a forum for which you both know you're going to have a discussion. And now you can build on what your knowledge is to ask those advanced questions. And, you know, most people, if you come in with a list of questions, I don't know about you, Dr. Rosser, but I'm sure you're very similar. We're kind of a little obsessive. There's 10 questions. We're used to exams. We kind of like completing things, getting to the end. We're probably going to talk about all 10 questions. Right. Nice to know what they are in advance. Right. So we kind of know where to head with that discussion. So it really does help us to help people better to be able to know, hey, what are some of the things that you're interested? What do you want to learn from this? Well, one thing uh, we advise patients is whenever they do- talk to the doctor about prostate cancer is is bring uh, the spouse with them. Uh, bring bring a, another bring, set of bring ears. A, bring a friend with them. In fact, uh, I've also asked the doctors if I can tape record a session because more often than not, the patient, it just goes beyond them. They're, they're so panicked that they can't understand what the questions or what the answers are. So and it's I good think it's to, a great idea. So it's good to have a friend or a spouse with them to figure out, you know, what is the exact response that the doctor provided. And I love the recording idea. I mean, I know probably risk management would be all over <laughs> me for saying that, but I really feel like what a great way to understand what I've said. You can hear it again. You can play it for right. your loved ones if they can't make it. If you have questions, great. Then we have answers available for you. And I'm all for it. I mean, I think it's a great idea, and it it saves me having to type everything out because my handwriting is about as good as my my (laughs) typing spelling. I really – it's not T – 
E-H, it's T-H-E. <laughs> I know it, and it just keeps coming out the wrong way. So it really does save save us a huge deal. Right. And then when I hear myself again, I'm always like, I don't sound like that. That's not my voice, and oh, yes, it is. But it really does help people. I think right. I'm all for it. Uh, can I uh, uh, just build on what, what Paul was saying? Um, even the, the the men who come to our meetings are going to be in most cases, although not all, in their 60s, 70s, or even 80s. Uh, we had a man at our last meeting, was 54, was diagnosed with aggressive cancer. Um, but we think about the fact that these men grew up in the 50s and 60s when a cancer diagnosis was a death sentence. And I remember grandparent dying of cancer that was just absolutely horrible. And so when these men are told now that they have prostate cancer, as That's Paul where said, they're coming it's from. a panic. It's a panic. And they, when they come into our meetings, all they can think about is getting rid of this cancer. And prostate cancer is different in that even the most aggressive prostate cancer is relatively slow growing compared to other cancers where the doctor will say, we need to do something about this immediately. In prostate cancer, even with the most aggressive, um, that's generally not the case. Men have time to think, to research, to talk to people, to get second opinions. And so a lot of what we're doing in those groups is just trying to help men to slow down. And it's very, very hard because the emotional reactions are so strong that all they want to know is, should I have surgery or should I have radiation? Well, and it's a really good point, which is where people are coming from, meeting them at their level. These are people who grew up hearing that cancer equals death. And that's not, I don't, I don't see that. I mean, I've grown up in an era where cancer can be treated and you can often survive and or be in remission for a while. And what a great experience Mm -hmm. that people could live with this and live well with it. Well, we've come almost towards the end of the show. And it always, I got to say, the hour goes by way too fast. Uh, Dr. Rosser, a lot of times people want to know about clinical trials. We've got a few moments. Give us a quick hint. How do they find out about them? Is there a website they can go to? Yes, there's three easy ways to find out about clinical trials. The first one is go to clinicaltrials.gov. That's easy. Exactly. That lists all the clinical trials here throughout the U.S., and you can hone down on trials here in Hawaii. We also have American Cancer Society website, as well as our University of Hawaii Cancer Center website lists our trials as well. And, and Steve, you astutely mentioned that hawaiiprostatecancer.org also has a link to clinical trials going on as well. All right. Amazing. I'm, I'm so appreciative for all three of you to come on today. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Charles Rosser from UH Cancer Center. We also had from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition, Paul Mizue and Steve Davidson. Thanks again for making this come to the forefront because it really is an important topic for all men and their loved ones to think about and take action on. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week here on The Body Show. (laughs) 